I didn't ask for this. I did not ask for constant suicidal ideation. I didn't ask for every single day for my body to feel like poison was running through it and I was going to die. I am now fortunately disease-free. Are you okay if I talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so here's the neat part about the disease-free for me is, and we can get more in depth, but I I did, you know, participated in this deep um, brain stimulation trial and, and it literally cured me. And but here's the maniacal part about the disease. I'm cured. I'm I'm literally in remission from depression, and we can get more into this. But and you know, people say to me all the time when they find out that I had major depression, and I say had, and we'll talk about that. When I had it, that they would say you faked it so well, you masked it so well. And I wouldn't say I take offense to that, but I will say that when you're suffering. And people do something that helps you or people around you, it makes you feel better, right? Yeah. And I get people all the time saying, what can I do for you? What can I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do is the question I get. And the, the simplest answer is, is physically what happens when it's turned on Parkinson's. So it's like, oh, my God, like that's wild. You don't see depression, right? You don't see it. There's not understanding of it. And so it's not as impactful. And same thing with cancer. You have chemo, your hair is gone, you, you're physically debilitated, then you're back, right? And so to me, I actually like the fact that I got my shaved head. My shaved, my head shaved from my surgery, right? That's my chemo. You know, I'm, I haven't brought it back purely because my, 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 wife, my wife likes it like this. I don't know why, but she does, right? So it's like mm-hmm. these moments, but it's, um, it's, it's so fantastic to see what this procedure has been able to do and cure so many, not cure all of them, but be able to assist in so many different diseases. Yeah. And it's fortunate that it's they figured out the right spot with MDD. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome to episode number 37 already of Stimulating Brains. I think this episode is a really interesting one and a special one. It is the recording of a conversation I had with John Nelson. A bit more than a year ago, John underwent deep brain stimulation surgery at the Mount Sinai Center in New York City to treat major depression. John has an amazing story to tell that goes through actually many valleys before a great mountain of success after this surgery. And I always think we learn the most from patient stories in this field. Even as seasoned healthcare professionals, as some of the listeners of this podcast are, I think it's sometimes interesting to stop for a moment and pause and listen to the entire story that led to the point of putting electrodes in one's brain. Because in clinics, we might be in routine mode, Um, We see case after case, patient after patient, but understanding and stopping and pausing to really appreciate the entire story and often life story of a patient that makes the brave decision to undergo surgery can be truly revealing. And I think we often don't pause enough to do so. And then also, of course, deep brain simulation for depression is, is very interesting. It is an investigational 
process. It's not uh, like in Parkinson's where we have 20 years of worth of data. Knowing it often helps and there's really good evidence about quality of life improvements and motor improvements and all that. But in, in depression, it's all but clear. And the jury is still out and the big trials um, for now have failed. So we can learn a lot from individual cases. Now I must highlight that it is very amazing for Mr. Nelson to share his story so openly. I did approach him only because I saw he was already acting as a patient advocate and he um, had put his story out there already in multiple videos and also other podcast shows on the internet. So I think um, talking with him a bit more in depth, going into the details of the surgical process and so on, could be quite interesting for this podcast. So this time I'm actually pretty sure that you're going to enjoy this conversation that I had with John Nelson. I very much want to thank him one more time for being so open and transparent, for acting as a patient advocate, for educating us and the public about deep brain stimulation, but also in the battle against stigma and psychiatric diseases. Thank you so much for tuning in, Stimulating Brains with John Nelson. John, John, thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, one more time to to do this. It's really a big honor to be able to talk to you, and um, especially on, on 4th of July. So um, th thank you so much for uh, making time for this. Um, maybe to, to, to start off, uh, people have called you um, the mayor of your town, um, and you are a people person. And uh, to, to break the ice, I usually talk exactly about that, about your free time, right? I often interview doctors, and I would then ask um you know what do they do when they don't do medicine so so what's your what does your free time look like let's say even before it all started like yeah, in the day sure. one now well i'm i'm very first off thank you so much for having me i very much appreciate it it's uh it's great to be here i i would say my core identity is all brought back to pittsburgh pa i was born and raised um there until i was 16 and you know, I, I bleed black and gold. I'm all Steelers. I'm all Penguins. Um, you know, it's a, it's a great city. They call it a a, a, a kind of big town. You know, so um, that's, that's that's followed me throughout my life. Um, been a big big passionate sports fan. Um, my father's actually a, an academic physician, so he used to work at University of Pittsburgh. Um, he was in neurosurgery, and then he took the uh, chairman of, of neurosurgery at Indiana University. So when I was 16, we made the big move out there, and um, I've really kind of moved around all since, and I've, I've just enjoyed thoroughly travel. I've enjoyed enjoyed doing new things. You know, moving to Indianapolis at 16 was tough, but uh, it made me it made me realize that that newness is good and change is good. And you know, I've I've just kind of always done the the most unique and wild thing that I could do since then. So uh, New York City, San Francisco, been all around, and uh, it's been it's been a good life. And so, so in a video that I think is online, um, you you also you are shown teaching your kids sports. So, so you, you like that as well, right? Mentoring. I do. Yeah. My, yeah, with my kids, um, you know, I just, I, I thoroughly enjoy, you know, the spending time with them. You, uh, it was coaching is a big passion of mine. I coach ice hockey for my boys. I coach softball for my daughter. Um, obviously spend a, a lot of time with my wife too. And, you know, life, life is with, with three kids, uh, 10, 12 and 14, it's completely chaotic, hectic. You know, you yeah. want to punch him 10 times a day. You want to hug him 10 times a day. That's uh, that's <laughs> <hard thing>. Yes, <laughs> that's great. 
And and you you were or still are to some degree in marketing. So you mentioned yourself, you're a marketing guy, and you um, I have to mention this because you, you mentioned in your email that you um, spent a ton of time in Germany as well. So what what did you do there? Back yeah, in so the day? I I, I uh, grew up in my after I left Indiana University, I was a Hoosier. I moved to New York City and I started in healthcare advertising. So back when Viagra was doing the big uh, kind of coming out uh, advertisements, Lipitor. I worked for that agency, so it was kind of the the cream of the crop at the time. Uh, my my favorite account that I had was um, I managed all of the Amgen business in Europe. So I was based out of New York City and was uh, traveling over there all the time. I spent so much time in Germany. Got the got to love that country a lot in Switzerland. But it's this it's funny the stuff you take for granted in your twenties. Uh, I just thought it was normal, you know, going over there all the time, having a lot of fun and. You know, it was a great industry for me. I learned so much. You know, it's it's a PhD in business, working in advertising. It's nonstop. It's chaotic. It's hectic. You know, I was yeah. in New York City, and you know, it was great. It was a great way to do my my twenties. Um, I ended up luckily getting in kind of senior leadership positions. I ended up running an agency um, about five years ago, so I got the kind of the the cream of the crop for the business side of the of it. Um, and right now, I'm not doing my own thing. I have uh, started an LLC. I'm just doing a lot of consultancy with uh, with kind of marketing shops and some pharmaceutical companies that I partner with. And, you know, I, I'm really fortunate. It's a lot of free time, a lot of, a lot of not free time. It's a lot of uh, independent time. Yeah, and flexibility. To, yeah. Yeah. Being able to pick and choose what I want to do. I'm, I'm a middle child. So I, I feel like I'm helping. I don't feel like I'm working and that works very well for my psyche. Amazing. Amazing. So, so with all that happiness and outgoing nature on the outside, um, it is, obviously surprising to most um, and many that that you suffered from depression. So I think you, you, your words were it was, your, your inside was crumbling. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. You know, I, I've always been who I am right here. You know, I'm a people person. I, I love, you know, why I thoroughly enjoyed my job is I love leadership. I like making decisions. Um, I like making people feel comfortable. You know, my, my business kind of rule of culture was I don't want people to have the Sunday blues. I want them to be excited on Sunday that, hey, you know, we're going to work tomorrow. It's all good, right? And so, you know, I'm, that's that's who I am. Making people feel comfortable is huge. And, you know, people say to me all the time when they find out that I had major depression, and I say had, and we'll talk about that, when I had it, that they would say, you faked it so well, you masked it so well. And I wouldn't say I take offense to that, but I will say that I didn't, you know, I, I had my external presence was who I am, right? My internal presence was poison, was hell, was torture. And so for me, I think the way that I look at it is I knew that who I was on the outside was some place that I got joy, right? I succeeded yeah. well professionally. I succeeded well socially. I have a wonderful wife, wonderful kids, right? Like I have what people would consider to be what what would be an ideal situation and i and i and i valued that but at the same time i couldn't i couldn't correlate the two inside you know and towards the end of my illness um if i had a big presentation to do i knew i could do it but i also knew that that adrenaline that i would have to do to get ready for it for that travel for that presentation would just completely pummel me on the back end so i'd come mm -hmm. home and sleep for three straight days you know, it's like okay. stuff like that. So I learned how to manage it. But the biggest thing for me was, you know, my life was crumbling, um, but I had to, you know, it was as bad as it could be disease wise, 
but I was still able to provide for my family. So the and I personify the disease. The disease is trying to literally completely crush your self-esteem. It's trying to make you feel as miserable of a human being that you can feel so that you take your own life. That's the goal of the disease. And so for me, I had that one piece of hope still hanging on as at least I could still support my family. And I got into a job that was very simple for me to do that, but at least it didn't take my mojo down that far that I saw that I couldn't even do that, right? Mm, and so that, that was huge for me. So that was the last um, anchor of um, kind of keeping you in place. You know, it was, the, it was the last anchor that made me not even feel worse about myself because I felt so mm. bad. You know, you, you, you know, just to tell you how, how maniacal this disease is. First off, you're questioning it the whole time. You're being judged by society, which is completely absurd. You know, you're, you're not being judged for having cancer, but I'm being judged for my major depression. You're not being judged for chemotherapy. Yeah. I'm sure as hell being judged for ECT. It's infuriating, right? And so to, to tell you how maniacal the disease is, is the only reason I'm here and I'm not dead is purely because of my children. And I had, I'm not better than people who have taken their life. It, in its most severe form, it's a terminal disease, absolutely 100%. I was just very fortunate. I had one tiny piece that kept me here. And that was, I could not imagine the hell my kids would have to go through at school the day after my funeral, mm. people talking behind their back, people saying, can you yeah. believe your dad killed themselves? That's what kept me around. That's it. So here's, mm. so that kept me around, right? But at the same time, the disease makes you so irritable that you're not fun to be around, right? Mm. So I'm here for my kids, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not, I'm being a great dad because I am a great dad, but I'm also a really irritable, cranky dad, right? So it's mm. like, it's just, it's just a mind F the whole, the whole time that you're dealing with. And, um, it's, it's a real constant battle and constant struggle. Can I ask how old you are and when it started? I think 10 so years I'm, ago was that? Yeah. So I'm 46 years old, um, and live now in Eastern Pennsylvania, Newtown, Pennsylvania. Um, and it started for me. I had one bout when I did move from Pittsburgh to Indianapolis. I think it was more of being 16 years old and kind of the blues of trying to figure out life and, yeah. and so forth. But I had kind of a situational depression there. Um, that was right when Prozac came out. I did Prozac for, you know, three or four months, but, um, you know, I, I quickly got over that. Um, and about 10 years ago is I, I started having the, the depressive bunks, you know, I just thought they were, you know, I just was, just didn't have my mojo. Right. I, I was, you know, being a little bit reclusive, wasn't being totally extroverted like I normally was. And five years ago, literally July 2nd was, was the true, um, decline, hardcore decline for me. And that started on, um, I literally just sent text messages to my friends that I met at Sierra Tucson, which is a rehab facility. And I, I just crumbled. I, I couldn't, I couldn't function. I couldn't, um, I needed to save my life. And, you know, I was a president of an ad agency at that time. I couldn't leave my house. I told my family I couldn't go with them to the beach because I had to work. I didn't have to work. I just needed to just be home and be alone. And um, I, I, I deteriorated very quickly. And I called a friend, asked them for help, and flew out the next day to a rehab facility for mood disorders. And that was the start of my very big uh, journey to try to stay alive. 
you know, after that, I've had three different stays and partial hospitalization plans, intensive, intensive outpatient programs. Um, I did transcranial magnetic stimulation. We 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 we, we yep. get to that in a second. So so yep. you you um. But thank thanks for being so open about it. So, so we're oh, five years, um, five years that that essentially was, were constant or were it ups and downs. Do, do you remember the last five years? Yeah. Oh, it's been horrendous. Um, the entire five years, and entire just okay. so so to know to, to explain how horrendous, you know, I came back from thirty days at Sierra Tucson, and I I kind of look at my rehab facilities because I had two as my hospitalizations. I just was fortunate to have insurance to kind of get me away, um, mm-hmm. but that was the start of my demise because my kids at the time are four, six, and eight. They're so young that they just think dad's traveling in Los Angeles for a whole month to cover for an agency. You know, they were mm-hmm. too young to understand. So you have, you're hiding, I'm hiding that. Um, my wife is completely crumbling. I came back from that, did the partial hospitalization, did the intensive outpatient program, went back to work. I lasted two weeks. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't serve a cup of coffee at a, at a Starbucks. Like that's how sick I was. I thought it was okay, but the moment that I got one single twinge of responsibility, I just declined um, and went right back away to PHP and IOP. Uh, and that started my kind of fake journey of just trying to stay alive and trying to work. When I say fake, fake journey, I mean fake journey of fake working. I mm. My job at an ad agency, um, I went back to another one that was going to be a lot easier, could still provide me income. Um, but I, you know, my, my work level went down to about 10%. Mm. Uh, and that, that was my journey. And I, I, I went from, you know, I, I, I started completely regressing from events with family, with events from friends, work performance drastically decreased. Um, a couple years in of doing that, I had to go back to another, another treatment program. Um, so it's, it's been a, it's been complete chaos for five years. And, such chaos that even going on vacation was up in the air until the day before, you know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't, I could do it. Um, and you know, and, and seeing that stress and awkwardness of the whole thing and, you know, that burden that it also put on my wife and seeing her deteriorate cause I'm deteriorating. Of course. It just was horrendous. And, mm-hmm. uh, and once again, you know, I call it, it's a non-casserole disease. You know, you have that adds to it, you know, that when when you have cancer with the support and love that you get from cancer should be ace for every disease. Everybody has cancer deserves that. I can tell you on one hand in five years, the amount of casseroles that have been brought to my house, right? Mm -hmm. Then you get the support of taking stuff off my wife's plate, grabbing my kids, helping them out. That doesn't happen. And so you have all of these additional burdens on top of watching your mind deteriorate. And it's, um, it, I can't begin to explain to you the hell that it does to a person. Mm. Yeah. You, um, you mentioned the silence adds to it, right? So not talking about it makes the disease grow. That's- 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the number one thing that I say to people is this. The disease, once again, its entire goal is to try to keep you silent so it can ravage hell within your body and your mind so that you take your own life. It's mm-hmm. such a maniacally horrific disease that once you do, it still laughs at you in death because once you're dead, 
disease gets to ostracize your family. It gets to ostracize every aspect of you because you were selfish and took your life. It's mm. the worst disease, in my opinion, other than a straight up yes. terminal ALS that you can have, right? And so silence wins for the disease. So when you personify it, like I said, screw that, man. I, I'm a competitive guy. I'm not going to let you win. I'm going to I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to open up about it. I'm a I'm a middle aged dude, successful professional guy that wants to talk about it for the rest of my life for that exact purpose of I want people to know that you're only going to get sicker the more you keep it inside. It's people don't fully understand it, but that's okay. That's why I'm going to do this so that people understand that this is a disease that not a single person asked for. And with some fortunate medical interventions, it can be changed and it can be saved. Hmm. And I, th I think one problem is the, uh, I think Helen Myberg um, mentioned there's a small D and, and, and a big D. And I should add, say at this point, I wanted to mention it in the beginning. I'm quoting a lot from the excellent podcast episode you, you, you did with her and the Out of Patience um, podcast with Matt Zachary. So I can really recommend that um, if, if, if this conversation is interesting to us, look into that. But So, so Helen, Helen Myberg mentioned in that episode, there's a big D and small D um, being, uh, I think, referring to the real depression as a disease and then our maybe more common language term of de being depressed, right? It's a big difference. Couldn't yeah. be bigger, in my opinion, but um, that may add to it, right? That that muddling it, you know, everybody feels depressed and every now and then and so on. That's probably what you hear, but um, that's very different of the normal experience. Sure. Right? Yeah, you know, I, I, the, the the greatest way to say it, there's there's different ways to explain it. Some like the little D, big D, like Dr. Mayberg, and, and it's a very simple analogy, and I like that. And, you know, if you have the little D, of depression and conventional therapy may help. And that's great, right? There's nothing better. I mean, there's different stages of cancer, right? One through four, you know, it's, it's, uh, and there's different levels of depression. And, and for me, what I learned that's been very helpful for me to explain to people, and I go back to being a marketing guy, right? It's a naming aspect. You know, we all have different human emotions, happiness, sadness, anger, feeling depressed, And so everybody has felt that, right? And guess what? Most people who don't suffer from the disease, they get over it. They get over it in regards to it comes and it leaves your body, right? The, the disease of depression, and in my stance, my case, major depressive disorder, treatment resistant, one star, do not recommend, horrific experience, right? Mm -hmm. my, my depression was at a 9.9 out of 10, 0.1 away from dying, all the time for the last five years mm -hmm. never leaves your body that's the way that i explain the disease and that's the most unique part about it is i didn't ask for this i yeah. did not ask for constant suicidal ideation i didn't ask for every single day for my body to feel like poison was running through it and i was going to die i am now fortunately the disease free are you okay if i talk about that for a little bit yeah like, sure Yeah. So here's the neat part about the disease free for me is, and we can get more in depth, but I, I did, you know, participated in this deep um, brain stimulation trial and, and it literally cured me. And, but here's the maniacal part about the disease. I'm cured. I'm, I'm literally in remission from depression and we can get more into this, but I'm reminded daily of the disease daily. And here's why Ted Lasso, amazing show. Everybody likes it. I loved it. Wonderful. Mm. 
We yeah. turned it on the new season two weeks ago. I'm excited to see it. They didn't have a recap of the seasons before. I don't remember it. I don't remember the content. I just know it's a great show, right? So the entire time I'm like, what happened here? What happened there? Every single time I drive my car to my boys' hockey practice, I know the 10 different trees that would be the easiest trees to smash my car into and die. Because for five years, that's all I thought about is how can I die? I was euphoric for death. And so I wanted to not, I didn't have the intent, but I couldn't stop thinking about dying. And my entire goal was, if I can die in an accident, guess what happens? My family gets life insurance. My kids don't have to deal with the judgment of their dad taking his own life. And I don't have to suffer, right? Mm. That was my goal. That was my euphoria. And so I still can't get away from that. I can't get away from the fact that I see this. I'm okay with that because guess what? It makes me realize how far I have come and Mm. that- We've been able to conquer this, but it's a daily grind and a daily memory of 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 the of of the horrific disease of depression. Yeah, when it started five years ago, um, was was there any like outside event or, or anything you you would be able to point to that may have triggered it, or stress at work, or a lot of chronic stress at work, or anything of that? You know, we, we moved back from San Francisco at the time to uh, Newtown, Pennsylvania. I had a, my wife, super Italian, born and bred in Queens, New York. We had our two kids out in San Francisco and I always said her, um, her, her, her need for, for home and getting close to the family came out hard. And so she's like, we got to get back. And so I had an agency in Princeton, New Jersey. So I said, great, let's get back there, based in, in Newtown and we had our third kid. Those were big events, right? Those are big life events yeah. to job, big move across the country, new kid. You know, advertising is insane, pun intended. It's nonstop. It's constant mm. craziness. And so I just was living my life, right? And I, I don't know if there was a single event that pushed me over the edge, but um, clearly there was a lot going on in my life. And I just remember extensively I remember it like it's yesterday. I I wouldn't want to get photographed. You know, little things like that. We'd have a family mm-hmm. picture. Um, I remember for Christmas about 10 years ago, I took three naps one day. And my my in-laws are like, why are you napping again? Right. So your behave my behavior just started to decline and my self-esteem just started getting pulverized. And that was the start of it. I can tell you, I have I don't have a photographic memory, I have an emotional memory where I can look at every picture over the last decade. And when I see that picture, I can remember exactly how I felt. And wow. so I'll look at that picture and I'll be like, oh my God, like I felt horrific. I felt as, as awful as you could feel. I felt like I was a thousand pounds. I felt like I was just a horrible person. And I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, I look pretty good. You know, like mm-hmm. I look look good. Like I look, you know what I mean? Like, like how I thought of myself from the disease versus who I was. I, I, it's just still surreal for me to, to, to be able to feel that, see that and be live that daily. Hmm. And you mentioned then also you, you weren't able to, to walk your dog, right? Simple things like that, that sound simple. They were at the end, not doable anymore. Um, I think barbecuing with friends, you really like to do that, but you hadn't done it for a long time. Can you talk about maybe the day-to-day of the things that 
yeah, were difficult and maybe why why they felt so difficult. That you know, once again, going back to the the disease trying to win at every angle that it could is I knew what I should do, right? I knew in order to get better, I should walk, exercise, I should meditate, I should do the yoga. My wife's a yoga meditation teacher, right? Like, I mean, there's, you couldn't have a simpler situation set up for me. She does that along with, uh, she's a board certified behavioral analyst. She's got a lot of stuff. She actually did that job, went back to school, got another master's in order in order for her to support our family in case I couldn't work, right? That's the things that I'm seeing going on. Yeah. at all times. And, um, you know, so, so at, as this is happening, I can't do any of it. Right. I can't. And so while I can't do it, what does that do to me? Continues to pulverize my insides. I remember sneaking upstairs, like I did at any moment that I possibly could sneak upstairs to my bedroom. My bedroom was a Caribbean vacation. My bedroom with the lights off, with the fan on full blast, with the with you know nobody bothering me was was heaven. That's what I wanted, right? And I'll never forget my wife. You know, I'm going up one day, sneaking up, and she's like, "Hun, why don't you just meditate?" And I just I just looked at her. I was like, "I can't," right? So I know through all of these PHPs, IOPs, residential treatment facilities, constant therapy, what to do. And I had never heard anybody say this term to me, and. I literally hugged Dr. Mayberg the morning of my surgery. And this is another thing. I literally go to po- I post this on major depressive disorder boards because it makes you feel better as a person who's suffering. I've never heard of the term abolition. And that morning before my surgery, 6 a.m., she comes in, she does this pumped up speech. And I just said like, doc, you know, I just, I can't figure it out. Like I can't walk my dog around the block. I can't do it. And she's like, well, there's a medical reason for that. And she explained to me that medical reason. And she explained to me abolition. And I literally looked at her and I said, can you, can you please tell my wife that? Like, please like tell yeah. her that so that she can see that there is a rat reason why I couldn't. Right. And so my reason for stating that and telling people who are suffering at the most severe level possible is that's the disease trying to F with you even more and make you feel worse about yourself. And so, yes, that is um, just one other degree of of why you're a horrible person. Is I can't take my dog literally and walk it from my driveway to my stop sign and back. Can't do it, mm. and it just crushes your soul. And and how how is that feeling? Like, does it? You, is it weight? Are you? Can you describe it? Is it just like you you cannot get up the chair? Or you, yeah, it would be super helpful to I think to understand for for listeners how it feels like in, in normal terms and i know it's not a normal situation but um is, is there any way to describe that metaphorically yeah um i would say that the simplest way to think about it is imagine you're at the lowest energy that you possibly can be at mm. and you have to move and each step is like you're in quicksand it's excruciating it's exhausting it's mentally fatiguing um, every single movement is something you need to think about. That's what it's like. And so the simplest thing to do is to throw those cold comforter over your body and go back to sleep. Yeah. And I, at the end of this journey of my disease, um, I, I'd get to the point where I'd have my chat, my children go to school at nine would be the last time I drop off. I'd sleep from 9.05 to 3.30, 3.25 with my alarm set. 
so that my daughter, when she got home at 3.30, didn't see me sleeping. Mm. That's what it's like. And that was the only thing that I could do was to sleep, to not have to feel. And, you know, yes, is that an escape mechanism? Absolutely. Um, but it's an escape mechanism that kept me alive and mm. I didn't have to feel like dying for that time that I was sleeping. Um, but I, I literally could sleep 20 hours a day easily if I had to. Um, that's physically exhausting the diseases. And people don't talk about that with depression, major depressive disorder. I would say the physical effects of the disease are as miserable as your mind um, getting worked. And every aspect of it, um, my, my, my speaking mannerisms, different. My voice is different when I'm sick. My face, my face droops. Um, like I said, I feel it. You know, when you get the chills, when you are sick, right, you have a fever, you get that kind of aches and shakes, which everybody knows that feeling, sure. that physical sensation where you just are like, oh my God, I can't do anything. Imagine that, but feeling death running through your body. Mm-hmm. I felt it in my fingertips. I felt it in blood circulating through my body at all the time. And so while that's going on, you just want to do nothing and you want to escape. And escape looks like overeating, oversleeping, you know, lying to get out of things so you can go go upstairs and hide. Um, for me, drinking, I didn't fortunately have an addiction, but you know, up until that point five years ago, um, I stopped drinking because I just said I can't do this anymore. I can't add a depressant to my body. Um, but you know, I went, I went from that to consuming cannabis to try to at least stop my feeling in my body. Um, that was, that was something I was prescribed, but you know, that was a, that was a, a, a kind of doctor approved escape, right? I did na- intranasal ketamine, nasal ketamine. Um, that's something that was great for euphoria. The euphoria was wonderful because once again, it's prescribed euphoria. So what I like to be very euphoric and not feel like dying for an hour. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, Take that. I, yeah. Yeah, I did it. And it was, you know, I did an off label version of Spravato compound pharmacy sent it to my house once a quarter, but guess what? You know, watching Netflix in your bed on ketamine, um, is extremely easy to, to abuse because you know, it's, it, there's a tolerance to it. So your eight sprays, doesn't feel like eight sprays the next month, right? So then I, I'm taking 10 sprays. I shouldn't do 10, but I'm taking 10. So that messes with your mind, right? And so it's it's just another, I mean, I, I had, I probably had four or five bad trips on ketamine and people hear bad trip, right? And they just think that's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, it sucked while I was going through it, but guess what? It, I thought I was dying or I thought I was dead. And that's, that was, that's okay. Cause you want to die. Right. So in, in a sense, it wasn't like it totally messed me up, but that's, that's my normal life. Like that was normal life and normal living. Um, and it, you, you mentioned yeah. two options as well, right? Like one is suffering through the other one is taking your own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you talked about it um, you know, that was a constant, um, image in, and, and across the entire five years in, in your mind. And, uh, um, very sorry to hear that, right. Also to just things press briefly the compassion here but, um and um I, I think may, maybe we can talk about the um you know the the various things you you tried and then throughout the the um these uh, had to try even to some degree so 
So I think um, there were partial hospitalization programs. You mentioned that inpatient um, and then in intensive outpatient plans as well. Um, you already said they they worked a little bit, but then you know two weeks after you were often back to the same state. And then there was also TMS. Maybe yes, can that talk was about these two things. So that yeah. was the, that's a great way to put it. Is you know they were interventions. So at, at the time, um, they they were wonderful. You know, being away for thirty days at Sierra Tucson to start this intensive journey of of trying to get you know more and more um, things to work. You know, it was great to be away from everything for 30 days with people who were also suffering. I didn't want them to suffer, obviously, but to be with people and you felt like a human being, you felt like, oh my God, I'm not in this by myself and this is something others are struggling with and it was therapeutic, right? Um, you come home and I'm excited to be home, partial hospitalization plan, nine to three, Princeton Behavioral Health you know, 40 minutes from my house, but I got to go do that. Once again, it's kind of a step down version, then nine to 12 of the intensive outpatient program. And, you know, all of this is happening and it's a, it's a, it's a good process, right? Very intensive to, to six hours a day to three hours a day. But as soon as I got out of that environment, just plummeted. And, you know, I, I would say I tried over 15 different medications within my 10 year period. Um, as, as you know, everybody, most people are aware it's, it's a cocktail, right? it's not one, one size fits all. It's not Lipitor reduces cholesterol for everybody. It's, uh, trying to find that mix and match and nothing worked, you know, and the therapy didn't work. And, you know, I tried to get, um, I just kept looking right. And the next thing was transcranial magnetic stimulation. And let me tell you how frustrating it is to do all of this while trying to manage um, insurance companies. And, yeah. you know, mental health care illness is just horrific coverage as is. I mean, if somebody has a therapist and it's covered by insurance, like that's winning the lottery. You know, I'm, I'm you're a hundred plus, hundred fifty to, to $500, depending on where you're on the friggin' United States, out of pocket to cover a lot of therapeutic options. Um, but I, I, were, I, I had applied, um, for transcranial magnetic simulations, probably five times denied every time. Oh wow! Every single time I get, and that is that is crazy. Just to mention, this is an FDA approved treatment, oh, right? Yeah. So this is we know this is different than DBS. We know this this is approved, and F so it's outrageous FDA. that it's denied. Outrageous, and it's you know, and, and you know, I, I've already been to residential treatment. I I've been to two PHPs by then, two IOPs, multiple medication failures. And I'm still fighting to stay alive. And so every single time I'm submitting for this TMS, it's, it, it's, it's like running a marathon. And then you get that letter and that letter says it's not medically necessary for you. And I can't tell you how infuriating it is to read a letter from an insurance company that's basically telling you you should die. That's what it's yeah. telling every single time. Yeah. And so I finally get it approved and I had to drive myself 30 times down to um, Aroga Behavioral Health in Princeton. Um, I did 30 different sessions of transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's basically 45 minutes. You're there, you're in a chair, you know, they position this device at your head. It, I still remember it goes for like seven seconds and then it's off for 30 and, um, you know, I, I drove down in the morning before work, got there around seven 30, 
um, drove back to work, got to work around 9.30, 10. Um, so talk about, you know, even doing that was as intensive, you know, getting down and make it happen didn't work. Of course. No, no, no relief whatsoever, other than a major inconvenience and also a major out of pocket. Insurance didn't cover it all. So you have a major out of pocket that you're doing um, there too. Um, and so at that point, I was just uh, relegated to the fact of, you know, I have ECT left to try, but, you know, clearly I'm, I'm treatment resistant for this disease. And, and you mentioned it and I had two options. And at that point, my options are purely, you're going to live the rest of your life in utter misery or you're going to die. And those were all, that's all I had. And, you know, before I, I got to ECT, I had to go away again to a treatment facility uh, in Tennessee, Tennessee Ranch, Tennessee. Um, I, I made my first call um, for DBS at that point. And so the, the, the unique part about this was just doing that research, finding that there was one more potential option. Yeah. And that was out of Mount Sinai um, with Dr. Mayberg, as you said, and Dr. Figge plays a big role also, psychiatry. Yeah. And I had the intake uh, for that. And I was still remember exactly where I was. I, was. I felt so lucky to be on this phone call with these folks, um, huh. the, the, the woman doing the intake. And ultimately she said, yeah, you've had a horrific journey, but you haven't done ECT. And that's one of the exclusion criteria, and that was great. I was okay with that. I was I wasn't yeah. mad. Wouldn't take me. That was just like, oh, awesome. So, what you're telling me is that if I can do ECT and I fail that, I could be considered as a candidate for your study. And she said, yeah, we totally would take a call from you again and do this inter intake. And I was so motivated, um, you know. Um, so having this horrifically stigmatized disease and then a horrifically stigmatized treatment, it was just too much, you know, and I, I knew going into it that most likely the chances of me suffering major side effects were there, having no relief were there. And I did 14 sessions and it was exactly that, you know, the hardest it was ECT, right? So, so, so yeah. to, to pause for, for a second, um, maybe jumping a little bit back to TMS failing after that major effort and and out of pocket, that didn't help either, right? Also with your family, probably there was a lot of hope, you know, now John's yep. doing this and and then the failure, did you feel blame on yourself or like from the outside or from yourself that, you know, even with EMS, it didn't work? So so that yes. that's, th that's something I wonder, you know, that treatment after treatment failing is not helping either, right? It's, it's, continuing to add to the misery and the low self-esteem and the financial burden. So we're, 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 I don't know if the right word is blessed, but we're, we're in a decent financial situation. We're not in an amazing financial situation, but we're in a decent financial yeah. situation. But, you know, money is stressful, especially when I don't know if I can work and I'm spending thousands of dollars and out of pockets for TMS, even with something that's approved. I had to spend $8,000 to go to Sierra Tucson. Oh, I mean, insurance covered a lot of it. I had to shove, save the same thing for, for Tennessee Ranch. And so every purchase is a major purchase. Mm. Oh, we get better mm. and it doesn't work. And so, yes, it is, it is frustrating. It is, it is completely um, crushes your soul and your self-esteem. But at the same time, here's the cool thing is I, 
was still seen as a fighter to my family. Yeah. And that was cool because they knew I was trying to stick around. And so that was something that was beneficial to me. But at the same time, you know, it's deflating. I mean, it's so deflating. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move forward. I'm trying to, uh, function and every breath is, is just difficult. You know, my wife said to me once, she's like, it's just, it's like you wake up and, and try to get through a marathon just to go back to bed. It's like, you're, you're there, you're surviving to get through the day. Totally the way to put it. And yeah, I mean, that's the simple way I would put it is, um, just another failure. But at that point, you know, my positive outlook hits declining, but I know I got to keep trying because yeah. my, my reality of that time was just tell. Hmm. Yeah. makes sense. Okay. So, so most listeners will, will have of course heard of TMS in this podcast, but it's transcranial magnetic simulation. So it's a non-invasive form. You received treatment for 30 days in a row. Um, there is good evidence that that will help for some yeah. patients, but not for everybody. And 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 um, especially in very severe cases, it it often does not um, help. So 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 after that, you mentioned in a way there was the condition of um, getting into DBS to have tried ECT and failed ECT in uh, in the past as well. ECT is uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, so that's a current applied to to the um, brain um, to essentially induce seizures which have a antidepressant effect. That's at least a, a very simple summary um, of of that treatment. Now, I think in that again in the podcast, um, uh, the Out of Patients podcast, um, Helen Mayberg mentioned, and I think that's important to mention here as well that um, you know this might seem a bit cruel. You have to have failed that to get into DBS. That's even like you know, making it harder for patients even more. But I think it's very important to mention that, of course, DBS is not approved. It's an experiment. That's her words. And um, we we kind of have to, before we try something like that, we have to have tried everything where we know um, from, you know, best medical practice that it could work. That's a le least invasive, right? So that's the main reason to make it so difficult to get into this DBS trials, um, not you know, bad will or anything. So I think that is very important to mention that at this point for the listeners. But then you, you said, okay, that I'll take that, you know, I'll take um, ECT, I'll try that. And that involved being driven and anesthesia. It, it, it motivated me tremendously after that call. And back to TMS for a second. So little d, big d, right? TMS is middle, middle D. Until TMS is you're not, you're not, you're not getting there with conventional therapy. Let's try it, right? So now I'm now I'm going up into the the true big D's with uh with ECT. And it motivated me to do it, to want to do it. And, you know, back to the stigmatized uh condition, you add in a stigmatized therapy, everybody thinks of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Everybody mm. is crazy, right? And so you you're dealing with doing this. You're taking your mental illness chemotherapy and not telling anybody, right? You're wanting, oh my God, I can't, I, I you're doing shock therapy, right? Like, like you add that, really? yeah. you add that level of, of, um, scrutiny by society and it just makes it worse. You know, the, the amount of times I had the courage to talk to somebody and say that I'm suffering from mental illness or I'm suffering from major depressive disorder. They would just stare at me. 
they wouldn't say anything. They didn't know what to do, right? Once again, if you tell somebody that you have liver cancer, are they just going to stare at you? No, no, of course not. Right? It just yeah. adds to the hell, okay? And so, so the ECT, it was very difficult for me. Once again, back to my middle child syndrome, I just like to do everything myself. I don't want to burden anybody. I think I liked being on the service side of business, taking care of clients because I could take care of them. I didn't. I don't like getting gifts. I don't like getting taken care of, right? And so I had to rely on people and I had to rely on people because they give you um, anesthesia. I believe it's twilight for ECT. I'm not, I'm so, so once again, my, my brain's wrecked a little bit, but you're under anesthesia. So I need to be driven down there and driven back. Um, and I did 14 cycles of it. And that's just so hard. You know, I can't add anything else onto my wife's plate. Um, I'm asking neighbors that I don't really know that well. I mean, well enough for them to be like, can you please take me down for this? You know, and, and, you know, I have, I have multiple people that had to take me down. And I don't remember, I don't remember mm-hmm. who took me down. And, you know, when you think about what does this disease look like in 2022, I calculated this in my mind the other day, I was under anesthesia in 2022, um, roughly 18 times, 18 times, you know, I became an expert in getting it and, and, and I, I made it a game. I made it a game from when they were giving it to me to be like, all right, you're going to peace out where I would just try to stay up for that extra half a second be like, oh, maybe I can get to a half second. Right. I mean, like, uh-huh. I mean, you just get so used to it, but you know, it's hard not to feel like you're in a mental institution and then one flew over the cuckoo's nest getting wheelchaired out after having your brain shocked and getting into a car. I mean, talk about feeling low. You know, you're in that car in the passenger seat driven, driven home being like, how is this my life? Like, how did it come to this? Mm-hmm. And every single time um, it was miserable. My side effects were awful. You know, I, I got so dizzy that I'd be at home and I just would fall over. I'd be in the bed and it would feel like I'm rolling. Like it would literally feel like I'm having a rolling sensation. My dizziness was out of control. Um, I, uh, I lost severe memory. I have such significant memory loss from kind of the, the six months prior. Um, so much so that even this past Christmas time, you know, we're at the big Italian uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve for for my in-laws and, and a lot of the fun Italian New York, New York area. It's the seven fishes. It's the biggest holiday of the year. It's such a celebration. And I'm sitting down next to my wife's cousin, a uh, really good person, Cheyenne, 30. And I just, you know, busting her chops. I'm fun. I'm like, hey, you dating like 10 guys right now. Like, what's going on? Give me the scoop. And she looks at me with horror. And she's like, what do you mean? And, I, and she's like, I haven't dated anybody since Nick. And I forgot that her fiance died of a pulmonary embolism in her arms right or my EZT, right? So at, at this Christmas, I'm disease-free, but you're telling me I don't feel like a complete, utter idiot? I don't have any memory of that, right? Mm. Stuff like that, you still are constantly reminded. But it was the greatest thing ever because guess what? I failed it miserably. And I got to call them back in May I went into um, I went into Mount Sinai West. Um, so call back, sorry, the DBS team, right in in New York. Yeah, I called back the DBS team in New York, and I very quickly was um, kind of uh, brought to Doctor 
Martin Figuier, uh, Figuier, who is just incredible psychiatrist. He's kind of yeah. my main touch point throughout this process. Um, and I started the kind of more intensive questionings and backgrounds and how to put together my medication list that they had, you know, kind of the documentation of things that I've taken. And, you know, after about 10 visits, um, dealing with, with him, multiple other psychologists, getting independent folks to look at us to make sure that I was the right person, meeting Dr. Mayberg, doing a ton of tests. I got the thumbs up and it was surreal. And the, the, the best part about getting that thumbs up, and it was probably in June at the time, was you're going to be the seventh patient in this trial. And, you know, we're going to do it on August 22nd. And I had two months to prepare for it in my mind. And I just had a little extra load off my shoulders. You know, I was, I was so excited and I didn't care that I was getting brain surgery. Couldn't care less. I mean, it was like, I was just you telling me, John, you got to get your teeth cleaned tomorrow. I didn't care. It was not, that was nothing. I mean, yes, like I said, my father does the neurosurgery and I did ask him at one point, I'm like, what's, what is this? You know, is this a big deal? He's like, nah, this is, this is, this is a simplistic neurosurgical procedure. So, you know, I didn't, I had no qualms, but I also didn't care if I died, right? Like if I died, all good. You know I mean? I know there's an almost 0% chance in that procedure, but you know, clearly you're thinking about your head being cut open. Worst case scenario that happens, I didn't care, right? It, that solves all my problems. And, um, it was a wild summer, you know, just getting prepared for it. And that was last year, right? August last, last year, year. Yeah. August 22nd, um, 2022. And mostly it was just who's going to watch our kids, right? It was kind of the admin tasks. And, um, you know, the day before I go into the city, uh, we go out and had a nice meal in New York city. I woke up at five in the morning. My my father and my wife um, came up with me. There's still some COVID restrictions, so it was it was I couldn't get my dad back into the prep room, but he was in the main waiting room. Um, you know, and, and to talk about the humanity real quick of 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 a of an organization. You know, I was in this clinical trial, DBS, Mount Sinai. With and I and I understand that I am extremely lucky to be under the care of Dr. Mayberg, Dr. Figuier, Dr. O'Neill. I understand that I'm extremely lucky, and I I felt like a VIP, you know. So you go from getting constant denial letters from insurance companies to, you know, essentially flying to London and being in the British Airways business class lounge as opposed to being waiting right next to the gate. Right? I was in the business class lounge for 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 eight months. I had multiple, uh, multiple appointments at that facility for CAT scans, for MRIs beforehand, for PET scans, where they'd be at one o'clock. I'd be in and out before one o'clock. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible experience with yeah. people who were extremely intelligent, kind, smart, and I was just in good hands. And, I, and I'll tell you, like I felt like I was as important to them as they were to me. I mean, it was incredible. It's hard to find people who completely suck at getting normal treatments that work and that are close enough to the hospital. But, um, you know, that the day of the surgery, I was, you know, I, I was told I'd get a pumped up speech from Dr. Mayberg. And this is where I say the humanity of it is I couldn't get my dad back and he wanted to meet, um, Dr. Mayberg. Um, yeah. and she talked to me, gave me my pumped up speech, told me to be present. 
And then I asked her, I said, hey, my dad's in the, the outside waiting room. Would you go speak with them? And she took 30 minutes out of her day of the surgery to do that, right? So things like that. The reason I say that is when you're suffering and people do something that helps you or people around you, it makes you feel better, right? Yeah. And I get people all the time saying, what can I do for you? What can I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do is the question I get. And the, the simplest answer is, is take something off their caregiver's plate or take mm-hmm. something off their plate, right? Give them a damn hug, you know, just tell them you love them. And that was something that was very comforting for me, right? Like, oh, you're going to talk to my dad, but Brian, that's so kind. Thank you for doing it. Or, you know, a friend coming over and and taking over the kids for the night and letting my wife go out and do something. And I, I, I segue that to say, you know, that was just something that meant a lot for me that day. So the surgery occurs, you know, once again, anesthesia, know what's going on. Yes. So, so, so quickly before that, like I, you already mentioned it was a, a no brainer for you because even if you were to die, you know, you, you had no fear of it. But, but I think um, that is still for, for many maybe fellow patients and, and even patients that undergo DBS for Parkinson's disease or other things, you know, this um, idea of, of getting brain surgery what did that do to you? I think there was this episode where your kid looked up and asked, yeah. what I you know, see so you again? It's a, yeah. it's a great question. So the procedure, no stress. Could care less. Um, like I said, it was actually, if anything, it was a positive because the worst case scenario was I died and that was a positive, right? So yeah. it was it was just like, it is what it is. Um, I clearly had known what it was like to be under anesthesia, you know, so there's just zero stress. And, you know, the, the you know having at the time uh, 10, 12, 14 year old, you know, my 10-year-old, um, the one struggles with anxiety, you would not even think it. He's like your standard third kid. He's completely nuts. He's in a great way, right? He's the, he's the one who I can do anything you can do and, and uh, you know, go, 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 super athletic. And, you know, when we dropped him off in the city that day, um, the day before the surgery with my in-laws, you know, he looked up at me and said, you know, dad, am I going to see you again? And that was the first time in a very, very long time that, I wanted to live, you know, it was like, oh man, like this is, this is real. Like I'm going into this tomorrow. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like on the way back. And so, you know, if anything, that was when I only had my slight angst of like, what will like, you know, what am I actually doing? And, um, you know, I, 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 I would say that was definitely something that was unique and, you know, g- going, but I, I still, you know, never forget it. You know, I, I, as a patient, the the physician associate who came in with me, his name was Brandon, wonderful gentleman, and he introduces himself, says, I'll be with you all day, and he's just awesome. He was, I think he was mid-60s. He looked like he was 45. He was from the Bronx. He had the accent. You know, I, and as you can clearly tell, I, I like people and talking to people, and I said to him, I was like, you know, Brandon, I was like, how many of these have you done? You know, just like, just questioning him, and he just laughed at me. He's like, probably 3,000. And so from a clinical trial standpoint, the procedure wasn't, you know, investigative. So you clearly knew it was a, a very common thing at that point. I just laughed. I was like, oh my God, I thought he'd say like 10, right? Because I'm the seventh patient in, who knows? Yeah. And so that put you at ease even a little bit more. Um, but they wake you up um, halfway through. And I- Sorry, 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 I, sorry for inter- keeping and interrupting the last yeah. question before we go into the surgery. Yeah, yeah, sure. how, how did your family feel? Like, how, how, like, did everybody think it was such a good idea to do this? Like, your wife or were they scared? At that point, you know, here's the thing that I will tell you that I'm very proud of 
the development of people and their understanding of the disease and how the stigma can change and how education helps. And five years ago, a little bit before five years ago, when this started really going downhill and I started opening up to my extended family, my father was probably the most standard stigmatized person of all, right? You have a surgeon who cuts, who doesn't fully understand. And when I first um, told them, he basically said, you need to snap out of it. He's like, you got a family to take care of. So he went from that to being the most supportive person in my inner circle, finding me therapeutic options to cure my disease, right? So with education and understanding and seeing what it does to a person, um, it can change your behavior and your mindset. So my family was just ecstatic. I mean, they were like, they had seen the struggle, they had seen the suffering, they had seen the misery. And so it was purely a benefit for me. And, and so, you know, hugging my wife, getting out of that room, she was just like, can't wait to see this. This is only something that can help. And, you know, the same thing for my dad, you know, my dad was there for me and he was also there for my wife. You know, they were out trying the new chicken place during lunch that day. And, you know, they were kind of their support system together. And um, if anything, it was mostly um, just excitement that I had this opportunity. Yeah. Going into surgery, you mentioned they wake you up. Uh, That's what I wanted to ask about. So so before you go into it, you know, you're dealing with this whole clinical team prior to the surgery. And Mm. I had taken this uh, scientific video game that they had created. Once again, another wonderful person, part of the team, Matt. And I did this, uh, this game. I don't, I don't even know what I was doing. I didn't know if I was doing it right or doing it wrong, but there were two different versions. of research, research question they, they answering. Research, yeah. this, you know, remote control that I was doing and they woke me up in the surgery and I had to play the game. So they pull the, 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 the they pull the television kind of right in front of my face. I do the game and then they kind of pause for a little bit. And once again, they had me do the game again. I wasn't aware at the time, but they actually turned the device on um, during one of those different sessions. So I assume obviously they're looking clinically at some aspect of that device while I'm, well, they had the kind of the, the baseline of me taking this way before the surgery. They had me taking it during the surgery. And then when the device was on, um, I did hear Dr. Capel, and I've not spoken about him. He was the neurosurgeon, phenomenal uh, physician and another great person to be a part of this. But I mean, you're so awake that I was literally cracking jokes with Dr. Mayberg. I was I was hearing Dr. Capel talk about the placements and moving around different aspects of the electrodes. Um, I literally said to Brandon, that physician associate, this is one of the things I keep laughing at. I was like, you know, doc, I'm going to have to, I was like, I said, Brandon, I was like, Brandon, I need to go to the bathroom, you know? And he's like, oh, you have a catheter set up. You're good. You can just go. And I'm doing these video games and the entire time I'm doing the video games, I'm just thinking like, I can't go to the bathroom laying down. Like I, I can't actually do this, but like, that's how aware you are. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, and I'm also laughing because I said to him, like, can I stand up and try to do this? <laughs> just knock me right out right away and obviously empty my bladder. But like, that's how. That's how with it you are. And, um, you know, next thing I know, um, they do a CT scan in the room. I obviously wasn't awake for that, but I did wake up outside in the hallway and kind of your, your normal wake up area. They took me up, did an x-ray, put me into my room and, um, you know, essentially got into my room around seven o'clock that night, six o'clock. I was in the surgery around seven, seven thirty in the morning. And I just was by myself until the next morning. Um, 
the biggest thing that I remember about the the post-op was, I mean, it must have filled me with fluids because I had to use the restroom like 30 times that night. It was, it was mm-hmm. common. Um, but I, I do remember I woke up in the morning after a very difficult night of sleep and I just felt like I had a hangover. That was it. I felt like I had a hangover. The biggest things that hurt were the points where they uh, screwed you to screw in for the head brace. That was the thing yeah. that hurt. Um, they do a pacemaker above your, right below your collarbone. They actually stick it in there. I never felt that at all. Um, so the, the only thing I had truly for recovery was these, you know, points where they screwed into your head. Felt like I had a, um, um, felt like I had a headache, a hangover. Um, but at seven in the morning, I'll never forget. I, I'm always intrigued in, in regards to what, what, what's going to happen that I don't expect. And 7 a.m., the uh, Medtronic rep runs in the ha- runs in the room. She's like, hey, what's going on? Introduces herself. And I have no idea what even Medtronic is at this point. And she pulls out this battery charger and is like, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you charge your pacemaker. And I'm I'm just out of it. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? And so I'm learning at 7 a.m. the next morning how to charge my pacemaker, which I have to do every two days. But that was just a perfect example of like, you know, what's going on? And yeah. um, I got up and walked around the hallways. And I told Dr. Mayberg that they discharged me at 10 a.m. I went right up to the 10th floor where they were going to literally turn the device on. And that was one of the first questions she asked me is, how was your night? And I said, oh, it was good. And I was like, I got up this morning and I walked the hallway. She was shocked. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, I just got up and walked. She's like, you were motivated to walk? I was like, I guess I was. You know, I, I don't know if it was just like the excitement mm-hmm. of you know, the fact that I was getting into this. Um, but then I went up to the 10th floor and do you want me to speak through this process? Absolutely. And so this, this was, well, this was a very neat is, you know, there, you know, when I think of my business meetings, you know, we, we go anywhere in the U S and 20 people would roll in and, you know, you have your meeting and, you know, it was neat to see what that was like for this trial, because I did ask Brandon the next day, I was like, Hey, how many people were there? And he said, well, behind the line where they were doing the surgery, there were 22 people. Uh You know, I'm like, that's wild, you know? And then you, yeah, I understood that the next day because you have the team there from Emory, you have multiple researchers, scientists, you had, you know, folks coming in from all around the United States. And, you know, the, the, the main room had three or four people, the kind of lab where they turn this device on for me. And then there was a big overflow room where they had us on Zoom. And my mom, my wife and my uh, father were able to be in there. And it was a very intriguing day because, you know, I hadn't slept well, as you know, uh, everybody's obviously there interested to see this experience. And Dr. Mayberg um, just asked me one simple question and they turned on one electrode at a time. And after they turned on each electrode, she would just ask me, do you feel like you can walk your dog now? And, you know, it's, I'm thinking about that and I'm seeing if there's a difference or a change. And, you know, it was in, in, and she would do that and then ask me and then wait about five minutes. And then the same thing, she would do that. This probably lasted two hours and it was, yeah, it was difficult. And the reason it was difficult is I was very tired. And sometimes Mm -hmm. in that like five minute period, like I would literally doze off, like I would nod off and then I'd get back up and I'd be good to go. And and you're being watched, right? So you feel like you got to be on on your game, and you know. So if, and my head's all bandaged up, and you know, it's just, it was just awkward. You know, it's one of those moments. But um, 
you know, it, it was just so fantastic because as soon as it's done, they literally huddle, like they huddled, like it was a sports game and they <laughs> turned around and, and looked do. at me and they just said, you're good to go. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, we got it set to where we think it's going to be the most effective for you. And that was it. I was on and I, do I feel it? I don't feel it. Uh, I don't feel the charge or the, you know, charges going through the electrical pulses, um, through additional brain scans that I had, um, with Dr. Waters and other amazing part plant, part of this team, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, different pulses that they can do of this, that would minimize the use of the battery, for instance, so some more research stuff that could still provide the same therapeutic benefit. And one of the things that she said to me that I'll never forget is she was like, oh, it's 130 electrical pulses per second. And I was like, and I, so I just said, I just sat there. I was like, and, it's, and she didn't tell me if it was to one side or two sides because the electrodes go down to two sides of my brain. And so I went back with my daughter and I told her that my 14 year old, I was like, it's 130 per second. So we brought out the calculator and we started adding it up. And then when I went back from an X brain scan, I said, is that 130 per second times two, you know, times each side. And so, you know, what that means is it's a hundred, it's 22 and a half million electrical pulses per day to my brain. And it's overnight saved my life. I got up the next morning. We got home, uh, driving home. I should have been in depression because it was leaving at rush hour out of Manhattan to Pennsylvania with my wife driving and my dad and I telling her the wrong directions. It was not, not a good scenario for situation, yeah. but, but we got home and, um, I woke up the next day and I was just lighter everything. You know, I, I asked my wife and my son to go on a walk with my dog. Um, I'm all bandaged up. I look goofy as hell. Uh, you know, we do a, we do a 10 minute walk. I enjoyed the walk. I enjoyed the conversation. You know, we got back and I had coffee outside of my back porch for the first time in years. I, Beautiful. I had friends over. Um, you know, the two things that I always kept saying is, why can't I walk my dog? Why can't I have a fire in my fire pit? You know, I had this amazing fire pit built after we moved from San Francisco. That's all you did out there was have fire pits with your friends. It's 50 degrees every night. It was amazing. I haven't had a fire for two years. You know, and so now, you know, I'm having fires with my friends. I'm calling people to go out to lunch. I mean, these are things that people do that just think are normal, quote unquote normal. I, I mean, I just, I hadn't been able to do those things for so long and the impact was immediate. So when I say those are behaviors, right, that I just immediately saw the difference, but the disease inside of me, the poison that I felt every second of every day gone immediately hmm. the suicidal ideation was as common to me as breathing gone i haven't had a single suicidal thought since august 23rd 2022 That's immediately amazing. gone and I, I could be wrong with this but i i i did see some um some some description of the voltage, but basically what what I heard or what I saw was the you know electrical pulse. That's about twenty percent of the 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 output of like a AAA battery, and so that constant electrical pulse to my brain immediately has cured me. And that is another thing that just blows my mind about the stigma of this disease is I have a physical 
physically, I physically have something wrong with my brain. I have a brain with an electrical current that needs to be supercharged a little bit and I'm fixed. Yeah. And the fact that I'm judged by that is just wild, right? It's like I have, I have a, the alternator in my car was broke and it needed to be fixed. And now the car runs perfectly overnight. And, and, you know, I, I will tell you some amazing differences pre and post, because that was something they wanted to learn was pre and post. Sure. And I got a tattoo to kind of commemorate my wildness of my disease and just this is part of my identity. And I did this during ECT, it took five days. I did a big tree on my arm and, you know, trees. And when you're out in nature, you know, it relieves the symptoms of depression. So I kind of symbolically did this and I don't feel it. You know, I sat there, I got the tattoo. I mean, it wasn't uncomfortable. It wasn't comfortable. It just was what it was, right? And I went back after the surgery without the disease ravaging my body to get some parts of it touched up. And I had to have her stop multiple times. Mm -hmm. I was biting my lip. The pain was, was unreal to me to feel, to actually feel. I did a discussion with a friend on a podcast before the surgery and one after. My voice is totally different. Multiple mm. friends of mine listen to it. They're like, you sound so different. It's just wild to see. And, you know, another measurement of how well this has worked is part of the clinical trial is they turn it off after six months for a week. Okay. Yeah. And I was stressed. And so, you know, I clearly go from feeling like hell to feeling quote unquote normal. And you don't want to go back to feeling like oh, hell. Nope. Yeah. And so, you know, I meet with the clinical team, the psychiatrists and psychologists every Monday for 30 minutes each for six months. The level of healing and help that they had for me as a patient was surreal. And, you know, majority of that time I was talking to them about this is going to suck when this thing gets turned off because I, I just think it's going to immediately go south, right? Because it turned on and works so quickly. And, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to know when it gets turned off, but it's very simple to know because mm-hmm. one of the things is you charge your pacemaker and it goes down about 30, 40% every day. And it wasn't going down, right? Because it's not working. Okay. But I remember uh, Dr. Figui, he said, you know, if if you feel anything at all, you may not feel anything different or it'll happen after four or five days. And I had a business meeting with somebody the day it got turned off and I had a meeting with that person a week later. He was shook, shook up. He he literally wanted to stop the meeting early. He was like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable right now in regards to how physically bad I looked, how different my voice was again, my droopiness, my slowness. Um, He was shook up in regards to the difference in me. I immediately was sleeping four or five days in, as Dr. Figuet said, I started sleeping tremendously. Um, Mm -hmm. I started some escapism behavior, overeating and so forth. I didn't have my mind ruined, but I had my body physically ravaged. And once they turned it back on, it took me about three weeks to get back to baseline. And once again, you know, a minor electrical charge yeah. does that. So these are weak pulses, right? So, so you, you don't feel them, maybe just to clarify that. And it, it, you know, yeah. the wire going down the side of my head. I mean, yeah. you have 
you know, the, the, I have these two bumps on the top of my head. I mean, there's, there's manipulations to my body, a literal body augmentation, but I don't care. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm not diseased and I kind of wear, I wear this tattoo, which is weird that I even have one, but I wear it with pride. I wear these two, bu- two, um, you know, dots on the top of my head with pride. Um, and I'm, it's all good. And, and what it taught me was this, and I, I t- talked about this briefly, but you know, the entire time, once this starts working, you know, it's too good to be true, right? Like this doesn't make any sense. And so you're wondering when is this going to stop working, right? It's just human. Sure. My wife was like two months in and still was like pretty reserved. Um, she just couldn't process how this was happening. Right. And I'll never forget, you know, seven, eight weeks in, I woke up one morning and I didn't feel good. I had some sadness and I plummeted hard, you know, as I was saying about the typical behavior, eating too much, sleeping too much. Um, I can remember it vividly. My wife said, Hey, we have a meeting for Hugo at school at 10. And I just said, it can't make it. Sorry. I got something going on. I didn't, but I went immediately back into that escapism behavior of, I just want to be alone. I just need to be home alone. And I sent a note to Dr. Figuet and I said, did you guys turn this off? Like, because they can actually remotely remote um, remote control it. You know, it's uh, re- control it remotely. I guess I should say. And I was like, is this part of the study that I'm unaware of? Like, did you guys turn this device off? I, I literally have the email still. And he wrote back very quickly, and he just said, "Nope, you're good." He's like, "We'll talk to you about it at our next appointment." And it was a major learning for me because that's when I got the understanding of the emotion. And they told me when the, when I was when I left the hospital, they said you need to rehab your brain. Doctor Mayberg said it very well. You've been at the bottom of a well for a decade. You're now outside of that well, looking at the world. And I, you know, when they told me that I was rehabbing my brain, I was like, you know, I, I mean, literally inside I was like, okay, you know, whatever, I got this. I'm not sick, you know. And as soon as that happened to me, I realized, oh man, like I'm, I have, I have trauma from this feeling. And I have trauma from what they told me was called distress tolerance. You are feeling an emotion. That emotion will come into you. That emotion will leave you. That's when I said, ah, I get it. That's the, that's the, you know, a lot of people do the little D, big D. I do the emotion versus the disease. The emotion is, is a three out of 10 and it comes and it goes. The disease is a seven to a 10. And, you know, depending on where you are on the continuum, and it does not leave your body. That's the mm-hmm. difference. And man, was I was I set up for being at a? I mean, luckily that nine point nine, um, I kept me around. And you know, to me, the message is simple. Um, the folks that are treatment resistant, you have a potential option in the future. You know, this is hopefully, you know, let's think a year or two, two years, if things go well. We get this FDA approved. There's hope, you know. There is hope, and there's never been hope before for treatment resistant folks. There'll still be the exact continuum that there was that I was on of yeah. multiple medications, TMS, ECT, then DBS. But it's something that will make you be able to survive, and that in itself will save lives. Um, knowing that there is a potential option rather than having to end your life. 
and ending your life is it's not it's it's actually i would say it's the opposite of something that's scary it's something at that point when you're suffering to the level that you're suffering that's just something you have to do there's no reason to continue like this getting horrible and so to to at least be able to hang on a little bit to know that there is some type of potential relief is just fantastic. I mean, I haven't, two weeks before the surgery, I had to stop cannabis and ketamine. I had to stay on consistent medication two weeks before till six months and two weeks after. I'm not changing anything. I'm not starting cannabis again. I obviously certainly have no need for ketamine. I am not gonna drink alcohol. I'm not changing my Lamictal. I'm not doing anything. I don't want to. I'm scared to change anything. Yeah. And my clinical oh, team's great with that too. You know, yeah. and, and and it's it's funny. This is another you ready for another uh mental illness thing versus any of other. Course. So, the amount of time, so let me let me ask you this. If you took a medication after trying multiple 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 medications for migraines and you found one that worked, would anybody say to you, when are you going to get off that medication? Everybody would say, that's amazing that you yeah. have something that works, right? Of course. The majority of people, when you talk to them about antidepressants, about any drug for mental illness, is, is what, what, where are you going to get off it soon? When are you going to mm. be off? I still get that. Are you, gonna, are you off the depressants yet? And it's amazing to me. It's just like these little tiny things that just, are emphasizing the stigma, right? Like, like it just yeah. makes sense. And, um, you know, so, so that's where I am, you know, I mean, it, it, is it, is it, did it change me, my personality? Did it augment me? Am I a cyborg? None of that. The only thing that this has done for me is eliminate and eviscerate my disease. It's gone. I'm still yeah. the same, um, same dude I've always been personality wise. Um, you know, the, the poison on my scale has gone from a 10 to a one, the suicidalation 10 to a one, uh, one is the lowest you can grade it. My irritability has actually stayed pretty high. Um, but I, I kind of joke and laugh to think, well, I guess I'm just a, you know, a stressed out middle-aged cranky dude now, Sure, uh, but that's okay. You know, that, that's the whole thing of that's life. Yeah life right to, you know, to, to, to quote to quote helen myberg on this one more time she i think the way she said it is you know they, she fixes a brain and gives it back to the owner or she had the metaphor as well to um you know uh release the parking uh, brake um and, and 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 then get out of the way right so for, for you to drive and i think that's that's one question i have for you that could be interesting to many um fellow patients that had suffered for such a long time. When I interviewed Helen Myberg in episode two of this podcast as well, she um, she essentially said, you know, she, she can fix the depression, but she cannot fix your life. And it seems maybe for you, this is five, you know, five, five years of suffering, I'm sure has a toll. Others may, might even have, you know, 20 years and, and then um, might not be in the same financial situation and all that. But do you have any thoughts of your own life, but also more general of how can you know, once the depression is fixed, how can you get your life fixed? And, and how was that for you? Was there, you know, it, it's a constant battle in my mind. 
because your your mind is is in a circle during this disease and and constantly going right and there's certain things that i have i still do behaviorally that i question well is that because i've had 10 years of constant behaving like that or is that the disease and an example of that is napping right i used to nap all the time because of this disease now, when I nap now, is it a negative or is it a positive, right? It's like, so you're, you're still kind of stuck in yourself. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, that's something that I, I see in same thing with irritability, right? Like I just said, cranky old dude, or was that disease or is it just a part of both? You know, definitely it's gone down a little bit. But the, the answer is, is, you know, I needed after my six months of constant, you know, twice a week therapy with the team, I needed a little bit of a break, um, which it's all on myself now. It's all on my own, right? I, in regards to the, the they're, they're there for me at any time that they need, but my clinical care um, is on my, my kind of my core team after them. I took a couple months off just because I needed a little bit of a break and a reset. And, you know, to me, I, I need to, for the rest of my life, have continual therapy I need to have my quarterly uh, conversation and meetings with my psychiatrist. I need to stay on top of my behavior. I was thinking on August 22nd, 2022, I was going to have my first hoppy IPA, West Coast IPA beer. And I was reading one night that, you know, microbrews, craft brews now have a a great non-alcoholic scene of IPAs and I ordered some on Amazon and they're amazing, right? So now I'm not putting alcohol in my system. So I'm still trying to make the right decisions. I'm not trying to um, do anything that's too excitement driven. I don't want to get my mood too high. I don't want to get my mood too low. Um, so I'm in preventative world for the rest of my life. Um, but then we'll kick and, and I, I want to make logical-ish decisions. Um, in order to um, be be neutralish, so that I, I feel like that will help, you know, keep my keep my mood and hopefully keep my disease away. Um, but I, you know, I, at the same time, um, you know, I, I've always had a horrific view of myself, self esteem wise. Um, you know, I've I've always felt twice the size that I am. You know, those things aren't fixed, right? That's not depression based, but. I'm not happy with my physical appearance. I'm not happy with, you know, the the food that I intake. You know, I I, I want to get physically healthier. And that's been something I've been battling my whole life. And and I'm hoping now that the disease is gone, that I can't begin to tell you if I feel good about myself, if I'm disease free and I feel good about my physical self, like I don't need to be a beach bod guy, but if I can wake up and not have my first feeling be something of, you know, grossness about my physical appearance, my, I can't even begin to tell you how good I feel. Right. It's like, that's what I'm trying to do right now is how can I help myself therapeutically manage my depression, but also try to therapeutically get, therapeutically get, get into the behavior of being able to make some positive decisions to able to eat better, be able to, you know, do some consistent exercise to not feel so physically bad. Um, but once again, that's a little bit of dysmorphic aspects of my thinking that I'm working on. So those aspects that still are not depression are still there. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice because I feel like I have a chance now to overcome a lot of those. And I, I should say you, you look, you look great. So, um, uh, there's, not 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 anything you should you should feel you have to change um 
uh, if, if, if I can say so. Um, maybe one important thing to talk about, you know, your case, if we just look at the DBS part of it, was an amazing success, right? Um, and uh, I know you suffered through hell before that, um, but 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 you know, we should probably also mention realistically that unfortunately not everybody will have exactly this, um, you know, rapid uh, outcome. And, um, you know, there's of course, you know, other other patients might go into this with similar hope and then might have, you know, less optimal outcomes, especially also with, when it comes to timing. I think um, uh, maybe to ask you how, how did they prep you in terms of what to expect and, um, uh, before going into surgery and then, uh, yeah, how did that? There were no. positive, but I asked that question as a great one was, you know, other than one, there were positive, um, positive out outcomes for, for majority of patients have positive outcomes. And, you know, I, I had heard as, as, you know, quickly as a couple of weeks through, you know, months as this goes along, um, I was overnight. And so I, I fortunately ended up being the quickest and, I will tell you that you are right. You know, expectations have to be uh, managed in regards to where does this hit everybody? You know, I right now, if I look at that kind of basic feedback I got from them, it seems to be better than ECT, right? I mean, ECT is a lot of people that just have the negative side effects and something positive. So, you know, I, I, I think the outcomes have been, have been, you know, great. And hopefully this will be something in the future that can hit. But I, I will also tell you that, you know, I very kindly sent um, a note to uh, the team and I, I had suggested, I said, you know, if you could pass my information on to um, a patient, um, you know, and they were, they would be interested in connecting, let me know. And I got, con I got contacted by another patient and we, we had our first meeting two weeks ago, a uh, zoom. And I keep using the word surreal and I don't know what else to say. It was um, 100% surreal. You know, it was like I was talking to myself. And, you know, her lying to me after in the email, just kind of following up of me just saying, like, what a special moment that was. And, and she just said, I thank you for making me feel human. You know, you, you feel like something is so incredibly wrong with you. And, you know, in, in, the, in the business that I'm in, we do stuff with rare diseases. And you have these people that connect in rare diseases and they're like, this is just, this is, this doesn't make any sense. Or somebody I can talk to, it's so hard to find anybody. And that's how I feel with this. And, you know, being able to see how this has impacted her, it's a different scenario. She's by herself. Um, she's an artist. She lives in New York city. I have a family, three kids, you know, we have a professional business job, you know, running, you know, it's a different planet. But to see that it's taken the disease away from both of us and we have a version of our life back and to know that that suicidality is not there. Um, you know, people say to me all the time, I, I love it. I love it when I, I came back a week after surgery and I had a friend who was very supportive with me along my whole journey. He'd come and we'd do a walks together in the morning when I could do it, right? He'd check in on me. And he said to me, how was the surgery? How's it been? And I said, it's, it's been incredible. I said, I haven't had a suicidal thought in a week. And he said, you've, and he literally looked at me and said, you've had a suicidal thought before. 
And it was such an eye-opening experience to me because I'm like, this is somebody who's compassionate, empathetic, been along for the whole journey. People just don't get it. They don't understand the disease. Once again, I don't understand what cancer is. 99% of people don't, but it doesn't matter. There's empathy and understanding that it sucks, right? To have, um, for, for depression, you need to explain it. And that's, that's been something for me, you know, just, just living and I'll, and I'll hear people, if I talk about it very raw, you know, I love it when people say to me, well, this is, this is very, this is very deep. Like this is, oh man, this is dumb. This is tough to hear this. Um, it's very, you know, you know, whatever that line is, I'm, I'm listening to the line, but like, it's very hard to listen to this. This is uh, emotionally challenging for me. And I just look at them and I smile and I said, totally sucks. I mean, imagine, imagine feeling how you feel like right now, 24 hours a day, seven days a week while being judged by society. Mm-hmm. It That's what it's like, right? Yeah. So to have that gone and it's just, it's a, it's just like, I feel like I have my, I feel like I have my life back. Right. I, um, Amazing. yeah. I mean, like neither before and after I still laugh, like my dad growing up, his things golf. Right. So what do you do? You do what your dad does. You know, if dad works on cars. You end up figuring out how to work on cars and another before and after I had my first round of golf. Uh, I hadn't golfed in years because of this disease. And I golfed maybe four months after the surgery. Best round I ever had. Best, best Amazing. score I've ever had. Right? <laughs> like- so there's even some, some, some programming there from the computer games that helps you with the golf. I'm joking, it's of course. So- <laughs> it's amazing. I still laugh. I'm like, oh my gosh, like all these new things. But, but it's in the, the comical aspect of this is my wife's version of this is she's like, oh my God, you're, you're back. She's like, can you have them turn it down a little bit? So you're not so, you're not so extroverted. <laughs> that, but that is something we hear even in, in Parkinson's disease quite a bit, right? Sometimes years of suffering where also the significant other takes care and, and has a role in that. And then all of a sudden the d- disease is gone for a while in Parkinson's and or much, much better. Um, that that sometimes can lead to change in the whole power dynamic of, you know, a relationship as well, right? And um so you bring up Parkinson's and I had a, I had a conversation with a gentleman in the lobby at Mount Sinai and it was just, it was a really deep conversation about DBS. I have a, a colleague of mine, uh, her mom got it and she said to me, her, she's basically gone back 10 years in her life. Yeah. Right. And you see, and this is a, this is a difference again. So people see physically what happens when it's turned on Parkinson's. So it's like, oh my God, like that's wild. You don't see depression, right? You don't see it. There's no understanding of it. And so it's not as impactful. And same thing with cancer. You have chemo, your hair is gone. You're physically debilitated, then you're back, right? And so to me, I actually like the fact that I got my shaved head, my shaved, my head shaved from my surgery, right? That's my chemo. You know, I'm, I haven't brought it back purely because my 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 wife my wife likes it like this. I don't know why, but she does, right? So it's like mm-hmm. these funny moments, but it's um, it's it's so fantastic to see what this procedure has been able to do and cure so many not cure all of them, but be able to assist in so many different diseases. Yeah. And I'm fortunate that it's they figured out the right spot with MDD. Amazing. 
you went into patient advocacy and and doing this podcast is of course also one one example of of doing that and uh, so thank you for that but um and we, we talked a lot about stigma but is there is there more that you wanted to talk about like the reasons of yeah why you, you thought the um i should be dead and i'm not and i have fa- seen so many unmet needs in this space for people that are suffering and you know the, the the main messages that I try to give to people are: this is a disease, like any other disease that people didn't ask for. You cannot snap out of it. You cannot just you cannot quickly cure this. This is something that is a disease that is a journey that is needed. You know, for the 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 for for people that know somebody who is suffering, support them like you would with any other one. Give them the hug. Try to take something off their plate. You be there, be supportive. And all of that makes their life easier. You know, you hear all the time, anybody dies. And when a celebrity dies, Anthony Bourdain, Twitch from The Ellen Show, it's always the exact same reaction. Oh my God, I can't believe it. Um, and it's, 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 it's such a simple thing for me is you have every single person in society can play a direct role in saving lives. Yeah. Purely not judging somebody with this disease by understanding that it is not something they ask for, as I mentioned. And if that becomes commonplace in society, people who are struggling will feel comfortable to open up, to get care cured, rather than remaining in silence with that hell swirling in their head with the only option being to peace out, right? And so the positive is simple. The most con- the most stigmatized condition in the world 60, 70 years ago is cancer. Certainly isn't stigmatized now. The 30 years ago, I still remember exactly where I was when Magic Johnson press conference came out about him having HIV. Pretty damn stigmatized condition back then. Yeah. Uh, now, right? So the positive is, is that their change is, is possible, change is imperative with mental illness and because it will save lives. If you, you want to, you want to make a difference, educate yourself, understand exactly what it is and, and make sure that people can feel comfortable to get the care that they need so that they can remain on this plan. That's the most important part. What's your biggest desire for the future, both privately, but also maybe about this disease? Two questions. You know, privately, you know, I would say I'm, I want to have, I want to live a, I want to live a life that is where I can be present with my family, where I can have kind of that. I don't have that financial stress and burden on me of, is this going to take us down? Right. Like, like, oh my gosh, like, how is this happening? Right. I want to have, I want to have kind of that, that non-financial, I want to have, have like relief, right. I just want to have like family financial relief. Um, and I want to be there to support my kids as they, they, they grow up and, and become adults. You know, like I want them to, I want them all to leave my house um, being independent and being confident. If those are like, they can fit both of those and I can play a role in making them be a part of that and, and being able to go out and be their own person in society. Um, 
and I feel like I've done a good job. And I, I feel that now without this disease, I can do a better job at that and in helping them. Um, I want to smile a lot. I want to laugh a lot. I want to, you know, continue to find these great podcasts that captivate me and, and help me and make me learn. Uh, and I want a vacation, you know, like I, I, I hasn't, I haven't wanted a vacation, right? And travel with my family and we're going to go to Alaska next, uh, next year. Oh. And, you know, being able to look forward to things like that. And then work-wise for me, um, you know, now that I've had this LLC started, just being able to make it a success, you know, come, come February next year will be one year. You know, this is all a learning point for me till that point, uh, till next February. And, you know, being able to have that kind of independence and, and, you know, my wife now has a W-2. So we have insurance through her, um, which is just, this is something else that happened because of this disease. And so I have the flexibility to be able to do this and, and, and being able to su- succeed in that will help me feel good. And then the last thing I would say is, is being able to become physically healthier. If I can become physically healthier, it will help every single other aspect in my life. Uh, in regards to the disease, um, I want to put myself front and center for the rest of my life about it. I want to be educating people. I want to, you know, I had a, a meeting, uh, a, a, an interview with a journalist and she uh, asked me, are you okay with being on the record? And my response was, I want you to put my name in bold and I want to be a massive picture on the front of a middle-aged dude, you know, who's talking about this a hundred percent. I want to do everything I absolutely can to make people whose lives are suffering suffer a little bit less. I want to make sure that I can play a role in, in, in educating people to save lives and I'll do it forever. I'll do it forever. And any opportunity I can to talk about it, like yours on this great platform, I want to do it. And um, I know it's making a difference. I know it's making change. I've had a lot of great reach out to Thank me. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. And, and it just, it motivates me more. Every, every time I, I find a new stigma, I just say, let's go. You know, I'm in, let's go. I'm going to go even harder. Or Anytime I do talk to somebody who says, you know, I, I did go out and seek some help. I did do this different. I talked to my company. It just makes me more passionate about this. Um, you know, and I, I would say, you know, to all the clinicians that are out there um, and everybody that you're speaking to, you know, you guys are, you guys are doing a, a tremendous job in making an impact and everything you do. Um, specifically in the future is going to going to help all those patients suffering. And um, the fact that they're even coming to your office and talking to you is a win. I yeah. can't tell you how many people don't even do that. Most yeah. majority just act like it's not happening until it gets worse and worse and worse. So they're trying. And so being a part of that journey and trying to help people get better, um, it's it's something that I I literally I literally half hug and say thank you to every single person that that supports from a clinician standpoint. Mental. Thank you so much for saying that. And I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to, again, also from my side, hype the impact Helen Mayberg had, ha, has had with her team, of course, but he, she's been seeing patients with depression for 30 years and really built this, of course, with many colleagues, but she was the driving force to, um, you know, 
get this this far. And uh, I know her her team and her center is amazing, and they do a tremendous job there. And so so you um, you also mentioned that I, I would say that right now, unfortunately, um, her center is among the only ones, uh, you know, a few few worldwide, right? That that could maybe provide similar things. And um, so so that is that that has to change, I think. So it, um, once you know the therapy gets more established, more you know, safer, FDA approved. Also, I think um, right now, you know, there's even the saying that it works if she does it. Um, and, and they don't mean it in a bad way, like not in a placebo way, but, you know, there's this um, experience that they amassed in New York that um, I think makes it a really unique place at the moment. And uh, I think our all like hope as a field and also her hope um, long term would, of course, be to make this, you know, available in other places too. And, uh, so um, yeah, maybe also from from my side to to tip uh, tip my hat to to Helen and to her team. I'm very fortunate to be under the care of some extremely stubborn folks who will not give up and trying to figure out a way to cure the disease. I know I'm lucky, and it's a it's a professional group. I'm I'm blown away by what you guys do as neurologists, the partnership with the psychologists, the psychiatrists, uh, the neurosurgery folks, and it's um, it's been. I, I don't know what else to say other than I I'm the most fortunate, unfortunate person ever. <laughs> Pretty simple way to put you, it. You 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 had you had a, a lion's share of of bad luck in life as well. So don't uh, ever feel uh, too lucky. Uh, I mean, exactly. Yeah, unfortunate so, situation, but very fortunate to get uh, cured. Yeah. Makes sense. Any tips for for fellow patients that might consider DBS or also might consider other options? Any any ideas um, or tips that you can give? Yes, yeah, so you know every patient is different, but yeah, yeah for fellow patients, um, keep trying, keep fighting. Something will hopefully be able to provide you some type of relief prior to having to get to the end of the line. Uh, but knowing that the end of the line treatments are going to continue to develop and evolve, and there is a cure. Hopefully that will be available to everybody soon. And that never existed before. Wasn't an option. You know, clearly that won't work for everybody. But the fact to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel when nothing existed before is enough reason to stay alive and keep fighting and keep going. And, you know, I, I will I will tell you that, you know, those that are trying to give that guidance, um, once again, the biggest line I heard is, what can I do? I don't know what to do. Take something off that person's plate, say something off that caregiver's plate. And in you had talked about, what do I want to do with this advocacy stuff moving forward? There is nothing that exists for caregivers. Nothing. There's no support system for caregivers. There's programs for caregivers. I always thought a caregiver was when you took your 90-year-old mom or dad to the doctor's office or got their medicine for them, right? That's not what a caregiver is with mental illness. A care- My wife went from being a wife to a husband, I mean, to a father, to a literally working, to, to getting an additional degree to go back to work, to, to every single household duty on her. Um, it was hell. And to know that the the only person this disease was worse for than me was her. It was horrific. And I have to watch this. That's part of the disease, right? And so I am going to do everything I can to also provide and promote and create opportunities for caregivers. Um, 
mean, that is that's that's the simplest answer for folks out there um, who know somebody suffering. Help the person that's helping them because that will make them feel better. Mm. And any time that you can feel any little bit of weight off of you, it's it's a win. That's amazing. That's great advice. Yeah, John, I, I want to thank you for your time. Last question: anything anything we did not cover that you would have loved to cover in this uh, long conversation? You know, I I uh, I just feel very fortunate to be here, and you know, you you started on a personal question, so I'll I'll ask you my my personal question to you as a as a, a an awesome um, I, I would assume an awesome soccer fan, German soccer fan. So why, what is it, what's the problem with us Yanks? Like, why do Yanks not get into soccer? Like, we're so passionate about all these sports, but yeah, the it's, it's a the great question. So, like, so, why so, is that? So, so first of all, I, I must disappoint you that I might be the one exception of not being a, 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 an avid uh, soccer fan, being German. But I would say um, that the one thing I think of, you know, soccer being different than, than many of sport like for example for bas basketball is that you know in soccer a single goal can change the whole match right yeah, often yeah. it's just one and so i think that is what fascinates me about this i do do love to to watch um you know world championships and so on and yeah. so i think you have that in in baseball too with home runs and so on that can sometimes really ch change the entire match um so and i think some people even hate that of soccer right that nothing happens and then there's this one goal and then, so so I, I get both sides but but basketball being more incremental and so on for me that sometimes you know the single the single throw is not that important anymore so that's something i love about soccer and i i'm you know kind of i i think everybody knows that if the us would invest even half of what they invest to to any of the biggest sports here they would probably always be world champions so um you know, it, it could be interesting to see that. And if for, for female soccer, you, you guys are, right? So for, for women's soccer, that's a big thing here. So that shows how, how strong the U.S. could be. And I'm, you know, even kind of hedging my bets and hoping that with the, you know, world championship being in the U.S. next time, that might bring some you know, enthusiasm you know, to it. Yeah, it's it's funny that the, my my analysis of, of us is, the fact that we don't, we aren't huge Formula One fans and we aren't huge soccer fans. Like, I feel like there's something d dysfunctional about us because everybody else in the world goes the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't know. It, it is interesting because it is really the world sport. One other it cool is. thing about soccer is that, that um, you can play it with just the ball, right? Everywhere in Africa, you know, and anywhere, you, everybody can play it. So that's another like really neat, neat feat of that board. So, yeah. Well, I can't tell you how much again. I appreciate you having me on. It means uh, means a lot, and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me this platform. No, thank thanks is all mine. So this was amazing. Thank you for so much uh, time. And then I know you're going to the golf court next, so have fun there and uh, enjoy Fourth of July. Yeah, have a great Good day. Thank you. Bye, John.